Well, I think it's clear the United States, um, in retrospect, um, never wanted to be friends with Russia. The um, First of all, remember NATO's original purpose. I think it was uh, Lord Esme, um, a, a British uh, officer, um, who became the first Secretary General of NATO. Um, he said that the purpose of NATO was to keep the Germans down, keep the Russians out, and keep the Americans in. So, you know, the, the idea was to suppress <clears throat> um, Europe becoming a, um, a viable counter or a viable player on the global scene, keeping Germany down. Germany, of course, being the European nation with the strongest potential uh, economy, the strongest military potential. So keep them down. Keep the Americans in, knowing that America had a, um, especially in the aftermath of the Second World War, very strong isolationist tendencies. Uh, uh, people who study how America got into the war, uh, Second World War, you know, need to understand how difficult it was for President Roosevelt to overcome these isolationist tendencies. Uh, Americans just didn't want to get involved in Europe's wars. So NATO was a vehicle to keep America in Europe. For what purpose? To keep the Germans down and to keep the Russians out. Um, there was a lot of concern about uh, how powerful the Soviet Union had become as a result of uh, the Second World War. Um, uh, you know, its presence in Eastern Europe was uh, considered by, um, you, you know, especially um, Roosevelt's successor, uh, Harry Truman, and Truman's British counterpart, at least for a little while, uh, Winston Churchill. They both, they both viewed uh, Russia's um, presence in Eastern Europe as a threat to the rest of Europe. Uh, it's totally... Um, this 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 notion was totally detached from reality. I mean, anybody who knew what the Soviet Union had gone through in the Second World War, 27 million dead, uh, it's, you know, huge swaths of its territory, totally devastated by war, um, a nation literally exhausted by this conflict. The idea that the Soviet Union was going to somehow seek to now confront the United States, uh, Great Britain, France, and the other uh, Western European nations in a global or in a, a you know war of conquest in Europe. Stupid, beyond stupid, lunacy. Um, but you know, Winston Churchill gave his uh, his famous speech in uh, in, in, in Missouri, uh, the Iron Curtain speech, uh, and you know George Kennan wrote his long telegram encouraging the containment of the Soviet Union. Um, he was talking more about ideological containment, but it was then seized on by Paul Nietzsche and others, and turned they turned it into military containment. And NATO is the vehicle of military containment. Um, and so now you you have NATO created. Uh, NATO exists for you know more than three decades before the Soviet Union collapses. NATO had become. Um, not just a military alliance, but a political military alliance linked to some very influential institutions. The European Union 
which is an economic slash political European entity, was seen as an extension of NATO. The G7 was an expression of NATO, global economics. NATO was in the DNA of Europe and uh, defined the European relationship with the United States, this transatlantic uh, relationship, alliance that existed. So when the reason for NATO's continued existence disappeared overnight, 1989, Berlin Wall goes down, Germany's unified. You ain't keeping Germany down anymore. <laughs> and then 1992, the Soviet Union goes away. Russia's there. Russia's not threatening anything. It's removed from the Warsaw Pact. You're not keeping Russia out. Why does NATO exist? What's its purpose? Literally, it had no purpose. None. And yet, NATO defined everything. The entire European-American relationship was centered on NATO. You can't get rid of it because it defines everything. But how do you have a military alliance that used the threat of the Soviet Union as the vehicle upon which to generate fear to get people to spend money into building these massive uh, you know, militaries? How do you continue that? Well, the first thing is you, you, everybody started to disarm the peace dividend. Everybody wanted the peace dividend. And so the military aspect of NATO was gradually lessened. But it's still a military alliance, but it's gradually lessened. It now becomes a military political alliance that seeks to spread democracy, spread the rule of law, uh, to spread the Western European American vision of how the world should operate. And the best way to do this is by moving into the vacuum created by the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Warsaw Pact, these Eastern European countries. There was concern what would happen if you allowed these countries to develop on their own, to actually become expressions of what they want. Um, the, the, the conflict in Yugoslavia serves as, a, uh, as, 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 a, as an expression of this. Um, Europe couldn't trust you, uh, the Yugoslav uh, nation to naturally evolve in a post-Tito environment. They had to get involved and forcibly break apart Yugoslavia and take control of the constituent components. And the reason why I bring this up is that's the model that everybody had for Russia, especially the United States. People need to understand we did not want Russia to exist as this massive federation, even though it wasn't the Soviet Union anymore, it's still a huge landmass with tremendous resources, tremendous natural resources, and the potential of Russia getting on its feet and resuming the role that the Soviet Union played in the world was unacceptable in the West. So Yugoslavia was a dry run, not a dry run, a rehearsal for what we wanted to happen in Russia. And remember, we were doing it. This isn't theoretical. The conflict in Chechnya was, especially the second Chechen conflict, was 100% CIA-driven for the purpose of destabilizing Chechnya, getting it to be torn from the Russian Federation, thereby triggering 
successive uprisings within the Russian Federation by minorities such as the Tatars, the Bashirs, the Berdyats, and others, and have this whole Russian thing fall apart, just like Yugoslavia. That was the goal. Now, if that's your goal, why would you invite Russia to join NATO? Why would you ever say, hey, Russia, we believe in peace and stability, and we want to peacefully coexist with you, and we want you to thrive as a fellow member of NATO. Come on in, join the party. No, because the party ain't bring stability to Russia. The party is destabilize Russia. And NATO became a vehicle to achieve that. That's NATO's purpose. The expansion of NATO, we knew what NATO expansion would mean to Russia. It would be seen as a direct threat to Russia. Now, we kept trying to tell the Russians, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. But Russia's looking at Yugoslavia saying, oh, we're very afraid. We don't want that. And remember how weak Russia was in the 1990s, how weak they were in the immediate aftermath of the post-Soviet era. And that weakness came not only from the dysfunction of the former Soviet area, the uh, regions, including Russia, but also because of the policy of the United States and Europe to go in and destabilize, to steal wealth, remove it from Russia, do not reinvest it into Russia, suppressing the Russian economic potential to create general unrest that could be exploited to achieve the breakup of Russia. That was the CIA's vision towards Russia. That was the official policy of the United States and by extension, the policy of NATO. Straight up, that's it. The destruction of Russia. So why, you know, <laughs> and people keep saying, well, then why did Russia act? Well, I asked to go in. Well, you know, I, I think we should know by now that one of the smartest men, one of the greatest men of this century is Vladimir Putin. I'm not one of these people that, 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 that worships the guy. He's not my president. He's Russia's president. Okay? Not my problem. But you get to recognize greatness when you see it. And every time this man gives a press conference, every time this man speaks, I listen and I'm going, there's a brain attached to that mouth. Uh, he, he's a smart, smart, smart guy. He's a great guy. He saved Russia. If you're a Russian and you don't recognize that Vladimir Putin is the savior of modern Russia, you're an idiot. Go, leave, leave Russia. They don't need you. They don't want you. And I'm not saying that, that you know, that, this is not a, a cult of personality, although it could be. He's been there for more than two decades. But he doesn't even want the cult of personality. What he wanted to do is save Russia. He did. He saved Russia. He is the only reason why Russia exists today in its current form. He took Russia out of the disaster that was the 1990s, and he's turned it into this remarkable country that it is today. But, you know, so when Putin said, hey, uh, why don't we join NATO? A lot of, you know, in the West, to show you how ignorant we are in the West, they went, see, old Putin's weak, baby. We's weak. He's scared. He wants to join the club. He's nervous. And so we then, you know, played games saying, well, you can't join, but we'll create this forum for you, a, a NATO-Russian engagement forum, where you can sit here and pretend to be part of NATO. We can give you a seat at the table. We'll send somebody to Moscow, and we'll pretend to be your friend all the while we're plotting to destroy your country, which is why Putin asked the question, because he was confronting them with their hypocrisy. They claimed to be about stability. They claimed to be about creating uh, bridges and friendship. 
the easiest way to do that would have been to invite Russia to join. But if you invited Russia to join, then NATO would have no reason to exist. Why have a military alliance when there's no military threat? To have a military alliance, you need a military threat. And the only threat that's there, that's viable, that can unite Europe is Russia. And that's the secret of NATO. It only can exist if there's a Russian threat. That's it. So now we come up to the, the, the first part of your question. Could this war have been avoided? Russia did everything possible to avoid this war. Russia did not want this war, but this war could not have been avoided. Under no circumstances could this war have been avoided. Why? Because this war was the policy objective of the United States and NATO all along. They wanted this war, and we know they wanted this war, because in 2008, William Burns, former U.S. ambassador to Russia, straight up said, if you invite Ukraine in, you will invite a set of circumstances that will inevitably lead to a Russian military incursion into Ukraine. We knew by inviting them, this would lead to a war between Russia and Ukraine. And then we did everything possible to make this war happen. We provoked the 2014 coup d'etat again, moving a constitutionally elected pro-Russian leader, replacing them with neo-Nazi CIA acolytes who had been working with the CIA for decades since the 1940s. We brought them in. We promoted an anti-terrorist operation against Ukraine's own people, the ethnic Russians of the Donbass, of Crimea, a t- anti-terrorist operation. They stopped being viewed by these neo-Nazis as citizens, and they became terrorist criminals. A war was started, a war which Vladimir Putin, the savior of Russia, said in 2005, straight up, I have been tasked with defending the Russian nation, not just the Russian people, the Russian nation. And the Russian nation is, de- is defined by Ethnic Russians, Russian speakers, Orthodox people, people who have a shared cultural and history with the rest of Russia. Whether you are a Russian, whether you are an Udmurt, whether you are a Bashkir, whether you are a Ukrainian, it doesn't matter, you're part of the Russian nation. So when these Nazis in Kiev declared war against the people of the Russian nation, Russia had no choice but to step in. But how did they step in? To destroy Ukraine? No. To preserve the Russian people, the Russian nation. Minsk Accords were designed to sustain the sovereignty of Ukraine. All Putin and Russia said is we want these people to have rights. We want them to have the rights that should be afforded to the Russian nation, rights of freedom of religion, freedom of language, freedom of association, but they will be part of Ukraine. That wasn't good enough. Now we know the Ukrainian government wasn't going to accept that. But Poroshenko lied. He said, yeah, I believe in Minsk. He never signed it. He was backed by Angela Merkel, Francois Hollande, a French German, who said it was a sham the whole time. A sham to do what? Build up a NATO army. Ukraine's military went from, what, 15,000 in 2014 to 260,000 by 2022. Trained, equipped, motivated, organized for the sole purpose of being a NATO proxy to attack Russia. Russia didn't want this war. NATO wanted this war. The United States wanted this war. And there was literally nothing Russia could have done to avoid this. Had Russia not intervened in a preemptive war of self-defense. This was preemptive self-defense. Article 51 of the United Nations Charter clearly allows this. Russia did not violate international law. This is not a war of aggression. It's a war of self-defense against NATO and the United States and Ukraine who came together to try and destroy the Russian people of the Donbass to take Crimea away from Russia. This war could not have been avoided. This was 
a necessary conflict, a tragic conflict, but a necessary conflict. Necessary because without this, Russia would have invited its own demise to strip Ukraine away, to destroy the, I guess, spiritual and intellectual core of what it means to be Russian. They couldn't allow that, just like we couldn't allow it. We could not allow, we the United States could not allow Brazil to come up to Mexico and use the Mexicans to seek to create problems in Texas and New Mexico and Arizona and California to try and strip those lands away from the United States. That would be the end of the United States. And we would destroy Brazil for doing this. We would launch nuclear weapons against Brazil for doing this. So why in God's name do people think that suddenly Russia's going to sit back and let this happen? It isn't going to happen. Russia, this war was inevitable. Russia didn't want this war. They tried everything possible to prevent this war. But at the end of the day, because of the policies of the United States, NATO, and Ukraine, Russia had no choice to fight this war, and they had no choice to win this war. When, when they started this war, they called it special military operation. And why do you think they didn't do this operation like what the U.S. did in Iraq? You know, it's so more decisively fighting this war. They chose it to, to, to do this more in, in, in not, not bringing down everything, not, not transportation system, energy hubs, everything. But they didn't do that. They didn't destroy Ukraine. Why, why they did Why, why they started this war like this? And Because Vladimir Putin is not a hypocrite. In 2005, in a, in a speech to the, I think it was April 2005, in a speech to the uh, Russian um, Federal Assembly, he, uh, he made a speech. It's, it's been misquoted in the West. It's the speech where he um, famously or infamously, depending on your point of view, said that the greatest disaster of the last century was the collapse of the Soviet Union. Well, he didn't say the greatest. He said one of the greatest. Um, and he's right. He's absolutely fundamentally correct on that. But everybody jumped on and said, ah, oh, Vladimir Putin, all he cares about is resurrecting the Soviet Union. They didn't pay attention to the rest of the statement, the most important part. He said, because overnight, tens of millions of Russians became homeless. One day, people had a home in the Soviet Union. The next day, they became foreigners in a foreign land, oftentimes. And those are my those are my people. Those are the Russian people. And I must protect them. I must protect them. So what does that mean? It means that Ukraine is part of the Russian nation. I know it's an independent, sovereign country. But from the psychology of Russia, Ukraine is part and parcel of the Russian nation. And so Putin is protective of Ukraine. So why in God's name would he seek to destroy Ukraine? Why? Everybody's saying, why didn't you do this? Why did you? And I was one of the guilty ones because I didn't get it when this war first started. I didn't get it. I didn't understand. It's taken me a while to understand Russia's love for Ukraine. In the West, nobody gets it. We are the most ignorant people in the world. We think that Ukraine is somehow separate from it because we bought into a Banderist 
ideology of somehow Ukraine being this entity. Now, Western Ukraine might be different. I will accept right up that the people of Western Ukraine do not want to be part of the Russian nation because they're not. They aren't part of the Russian nation. They're an artificiality attached to the Russian nation. Um, and maybe when this is all said and done, the Russian nation should evict them. And I'm not saying kick them out of the territory. I'm saying that territory should not be considered part of the Russian nation. Give it to Poland, make it its own standalone entity. I don't care. Denazify it first. Uh, but I, I accept that Western Ukraine is not part of the Russian nation, but the rest of Ukraine is. Um, so why would Vladimir Putin, who is on the record, remember, this is a serious man. He's not an American politician. He doesn't say things lightly. He doesn't make promises and not deliver. This is a serious man who saved his nation, who saved his country. And in 2005, he was still in the process of saving Russia. So why would he initiate an operation to deal with a threat that's been created not by Ukraine in isolation, but by the United States and NATO using Western Ukrainian Nazis to poison the mind of the rest of Ukraine? Why would he then go in and destroy this? He wouldn't. What was the purpose of the special military operation? You see, when it first started, I, in my simplistic military Marine Corps trained mind, said the purpose must be to close with and destroy your enemy through firepower maneuver. Kill everybody. That's what we do when we go to war. No joking around. You want to fight America? Understand we're coming in. We're not here to help you. We're here to kill you. Surrender, you might get to live. Fight us, we will kill you all. That's our approach. All right? And so we believed, I believed, that that's the approach Russia would take going into Ukraine. How ignorant was I? How ignorant is anybody who says that was Russia's objective or should have been Russia's objective? How could it possibly have been Russia's objective? When the Russian leader has said that I am the protector of the Russian nation, if he's the protector of the Russian nation, why would he then destroy an extension of the Russian nation, which is what Ukraine is? No. What Vladimir Putin wanted, which we still don't get in the West, was to make this conflict as short as possible, inflict as few casualties as possible. He wanted a negotiated end to this conflict. The purpose of the special military operation was to create conditions which would get Ukraine to the negotiating table as quickly as possible to bring this war to a most rapid conclusion. And it almost worked. It almost worked. Everybody says, oh, it failed the first part. I said it too. Oh, the first part was a failure. No, I'm wrong. And everybody who says it was a failure was wrong. Because within a week of initiating the special military operation, Ukrainian uh, delegations were sitting in Gomel, Belarus, meeting with their Russian counterparts. They had three negotiations um, in, in early March that led to a potential fourth negotiation in Istanbul on 1 April that would have brought this war to an end the way the Russians wanted it to be. That was the Russian goal and objective all along, to have a very short conflict, to not inflict harm, do not hurt the infrastructure, do not hurt the civilians, don't even kill the military. If they resist, yes, you have to fight, but not to seek to destroy the Ukrainian military. Just to create pressure on the Ukrainian government, get them to the negotiating table, get this war to end in a way that furthered Russia's goals and objectives of a 
new European security framework. Remember the draft treaties, December 17th, 2021, they were submitted to NATO in the United States. That's what the Russians wanted, not the conquest of Europe, but to live in peaceful coexistence with Europe. And the key to that is to make sure that Ukraine does not become a NATO extension, a NATO proxy, a force of instability, that Ukraine becomes at a minimum a neutral entity. But the best idea would be not to get Ukraine to physically join Russia, but to act as an extension of the Russian nation, which means that Ukrainians and Russians live together in peaceful harmony. That was the goal. That was the objective. And it almost worked. NATO shot it down. So everybody who is critical of the special military operation, they don't have a clue what they're talking about. They literally are the most ignorant people on the planet. Victoria Nuland said Ukraine can 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 target everything in Crimea. And we see that the head of Zelensky's office, Mikhail Podolyak, if I'm pronounce it correctly he said ukraine has <laughs> ukraine has the right to destroy everything in donbass in kherson in zaporizhia in 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 crimea you see the rhetoric it's getting more strong it's getting stronger and stronger and you see japan is going to send weapons today we learned that japan is going to is going to ease the regulation to send weapons out of the country. How do you see these escalations that, that, that are happening on the battlefield? I don't see NATO backing off. I don't see Russia will not back off. We cannot consider that at all. But how do you see that just prolonging the war would, would increase this escalation, would increase the, the risk of a nuclear war? Well, I mean, you know, first of all, let's reflect on Victoria Nuland. Um, she is a senior member of the United States uh, Department of State. She is somebody who, when she speaks, um, isn't just repeating policy. She's made this policy. She is a policy maker. Um, so think of what she said. She said that Ukraine can use weapons to attack Russia. She, she's talking the language of war. See, she believes that Ukraine is at war with Russia. When you have uh, the, the Ukrainian advisor um, speaking about shelling Crimea, the Donbass, and even Russia, he's speaking not only in terms of war, but a continuation of the anti-terrorist operation. He doesn't view the, um, the citizens of Crimea and the Donbass as being Ukrainians. He views them as being Russians, the enemy. Um, so these are people who are speaking the language of war. But let me make it very clear that if Russia was at war with Ukraine, that advisor to the president, Zelensky, wouldn't be alive. Kiev wouldn't exist. No Ukrainian city would exist in its current state. Nothing would exist because Russia would have destroyed it all. That's what you do when you go to war. Russia's still not at war. Russia has had to increase the level of violence brought to bear on the special military, you know, on, on Ukraine, but it's still a special military operation. If it becomes a war, the world will know it because not only will Ukraine 
cease to exist. And I'm not talking about nuclear weapons. I'm talking about conventional military force. The fact that the Ukrainian parliament can still meet in a building that's intact. The fact that the president can still meet in Bankova Street to in his presidential palace. The fact that anything continued to happen in Ukraine. The fact that Victoria Nuland can visit uh, Ukraine. Nobody would be allowed to visit Ukraine. Everybody would die who visited Ukraine because Ukraine would be at war with Russia, major power. And it wouldn't just be Ukraine at war, uh, because by extension now, uh, nations that have been serving as active participants in this conflict would become at war, and Russia would be at war with NATO. Russia would defeat NATO. You'd say, I don't see NATO backing down. Really? I see NATO backing down. Not politically, because politicians always sit behind a desk far removed from the threat and talk, 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 talk. But where is the NATO military? Where is the NATO equipment? Why do they have to go to Japan to get military assistance? Ask yourself that question. Why do you have to go all the way across the world to Japan, all the way across the world to South Korea to get military assistance? Because there ain't nothing left from Europe. It's all gone. Where did it go? To Ukraine. What happened to it? The Russians destroyed it. Huh. That's the reality. Russia is winning this war. Russia will win this war. NATO will lose this war. NATO can't win this war. There's nothing NATO can do to stop this. Ask yourself when this Japanese assistance is going to arrive. In what quantities? Are the, are the Ukrainians going to be capable of absorbing this equipment? And the answer is it's going to arrive too late because there won't be a viable Ukrainian military by the end of the summer. Russia is in the process of chewing it up and spitting it out. A lot of talk about a counteroffensive. Good luck with that. I mean, whatever forces they're able to assemble, uh, they're not going to be able to concentrate because Russia has, in effect, destroyed Ukraine's air defense systems on the front lines. That means the Russian aircraft can operate with near impunity, and Russian intelligence is good enough to pick up concentration of forces. They're no longer protected by air defense. They will be destroyed piecemeal before they even get a chance to launch an attack, but if they are going to be able to close with the Russian lines, they're going to need massive quantities of artillery support to suppress the Russian defenses, but they don't have artillery ammunition anymore. They burned it all out. So you have no air defense, no artillery, and what, you're going to take these tanks that you've received from the West with poorly trained crews, and you're going up against a defense in depth by the Russians, fully supported by the totality of Russian firepower? isn't going to happen. Uh, the Ukrainians, if they try it, they're going to die, and Russia will continue the process of tragically destroying demilitarization of Ukraine, which means that any Ukrainian that continues to resist will either be killed, wounded, or captured. There will be no Ukrainian victory. There will be no NATO victory. All they can do is define how severe their defeat will be. The sooner Ukraine surrenders the less pain they will feel. The longer they resist, the more death and destruction will be dealt to them. That's the harsh reality of what we're looking at today in Ukraine. Could Putin prevent the coup of 2014 in Ukraine? Do you think it was possible to prevent that? First of all, you, you have to understand that despite all of the uh, propaganda that's been perpetrated here in the West, uh, Russia actually respects sovereignty. 
mean, you know, so first of all, the, the question, could he have prevented it? What does that mean? Prevented it how? By interfering in the sovereign domestic politics of Ukraine? Um, look, Russia has interest in Ukraine. Let's not pretend that Russian intelligence isn't involved, isn't insinuated, isn't collecting data, and maybe even influencing stuff. But take a look at the negotiation. You know, I called uh, Viktor Yanukovych a pro-Russian president, but he wasn't. He wasn't anti-Russian, but he wanted to join the EU. He wanted to have an economic divorce from uh, the, 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 you know, the, the Soviet legacy, uh, which was represented by um, Russia. And, and remember, Russia's economy during that time wasn't the healthiest economy. Vladimir Putin was still in the process of rebuilding the station robbed by 10 years of Boris Yeltsin. And so put yourself in the shoes of the Ukrainians. You're looking to the West and you're going prosperity, thriving economy. You're looking to the East and Russia, struggling, uh, barely rebuilding, oligarchs. We got oligarchs. Ah, let's go that way. And, um, and Putin said, okay. said, okay, we're not going to stop you. Wow, imagine that. A leader of a nation that has vested interests in Ukraine, who would very much like Ukraine to be linked to them economically, said, you're a sovereign state. You, you can do what you want to do. So what was Putin supposed to do? Invade? Organize his own coup d'etat? That's what the West does. Putin basically laid down the rules. Said if you want to go there, though, you have to pay for it. I'm not going to underwrite comments of, you know, getting you into the European Union. That's a Ukrainian problem. You do it. Now, could he have helped Yanukovych? I guess one would say that if Putin did that, uh, you know, provided the assistance to help Ukraine decouple from Russia and go to the West, but that's unrealistic. It's unrealistic for any nation to sit there and help somebody commit, you know, enact a divorce. Uh, if they, you want a divorce, that's your decision. In retrospect, who knows? But here's the thing. If you if you facilitate Ukraine's economic divorce from Russia and their union with the EU, how do you deal with NATO then? How do you deal with NATO expansion? What happens then if Ukraine says, well, the next step now that we're in the EU is uh, we want to join NATO? Kind of problematic. Uh, Russia could never allow NATO, uh, Ukraine to become a NATO member. You simply can't allow it. And um, and I know that flies in the face of people who say, well, what happened to Putin saying that Ukraine is a sovereign state? To a point. To a point, it's a sovereign state. But now we come back to the original premise. It's also part of the Russian nation. And Vladimir Putin is not going to allow NATO to come in and strip away part of the Russian nation. Kiev, Kiev in Rus, the historical connectivity. Um, it's just inconceivable. And anybody who knew Russia, knew Russian's history, knew, knows anything about the Russian nation, would understand that that just can't be. The biggest proponents of it, of course, are the members of NATO in the United States who want to see the uh, dissolution of Russia, the weakening of Russia, and Western Ukrainians who aren't part of the Russian nation. They're the ones seeking the permanent divorce. But Ukrainians, Orthodox Ukrainians, people who have that shared culture, shared history, shared religion, 
They understand that. They don't want to be divorced from the Russian nation because they are the Russian nation. Why? Why? Because well, one of the reasons, as we know, it was the this this attempt by Ukrainian politicians to Ukrainianize this region, these eth- ethnic Russians. Why they wanted that? It wasn't possible. It wasn't there. They, they have to feel it to accept it, but they, they, they didn't feel it. But, but they were, they were, they were pushing hard to Ukrainianize these people. I think again, not to be, not to denigrate, uh, the concept of Ukrainian nationalism. Um, and, and I understand, I mean, you know, a lot of people in the West took a look at the speeches made by Vladimir Putin in the lead up to the, uh, special military operation where he spoke about um, you know, the artificiality of Ukraine. Um, historically, he's correct, but I, I, I do think that, you know, again, when Russia after 1992 allowed Ukraine to exist as a sovereign state, uh, you need to understand that from 1992 to, to 2022, you have 30 years of, um, of people knowing only Ukraine as an independent state. People who were born or children when the Soviet Union collapsed who were born afterwards only knew Ukraine as an independent state. Uh, and so, you know, there was this, this Ukrainian sense of national identity, uh, defined by a border. But now what constitutes being a Ukrainian? <clears throat> if you're an ethnic Russian, um, being a Ukrainian means you speak Russian, uh, that you have, you know, links with Russia, you have family. I mean, it's tough. Uh, the only people that had no links with Russia were the Western Ukrainians, the Banderists, the Nazis. Um, they're the ones driving this, you see. In order for them to create, they have a vision of a Ukrainian nation that is separate from the Russian nation. So the first thing they have to do is destroy the historical connect- connectivity. So you rewrite history, and that's what they did. They went in, they rewrote history books about how, you know, nothing about Russia, all about Ukraine. Um Culturally, and uh, Anatoly Antonov, the Russian ambassador to the United States, uh, has pointed this out. When you go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, you have artists who are historically considered to be Russian artists. And remember, Russia is not ethnic Russian-speaking Russian. Russia is the Russian nation. And even Imperial Russia had Armenians, had Ukrainians, had Latvians, Lithuanians, Estonians, Tatars, Bashkirs, Buryats, all were part of the Russian nation, the Russian nation. And so they are Russian artists. If you developed your artistic talent uh, while living as part of the Russian empire, educated in Russian institutions and working for, you know, Russian legal authorities, you are Russian. But what the Ukrainians now have done is said because somebody was from this area or, you know, was raised in this area that today is part of Ukraine, they are Ukrainian artists. But remember, there was no Ukraine during that time. There was no sense of Ukrainian national identity. Ukraine had played no role whatsoever in developing the artistic um, genius of these people. But what Ukraine has done, come in and culturally stolen Russia's cultural history, artistic history, to make it their own. So they can create this artificiality called Ukraine. And that's the fact. Ukraine is an artificial state, a made-up state. It doesn't exist. 
it certainly doesn't exist in its current configuration. Because when you attach Western Ukraine, this Nazi-ridden, poison land to the rest of Russia, it doesn't work. But these Nazis, these Western Ukrainian, these banderists, uh, who, remember, Stepan Bandera said in order to achieve his vision of Ukraine, he was willing to allow millions of innocent people to die. <laughs> That's the basic premise of these sick people. But they're stealing everything. And what they had to do, therefore, is to stamp out any vestige of Russia. So you attack the language, you outlaw the language, you take down the statues to forget that Odessa is the city of Catherine the Great, created by Catherine the Great because it's a Russian city, not a Ukrainian city. But in order to rename it, they have to bring down her statue, so they took it down. They're taking down the statues of Russian poets, Russian artists, Russian generals, Soviets who liberated them from the Nazis because the Banderas are Nazis. Therefore, they view the Soviets as the enemy. Think about it. Think about it, people. The people that were defending were the allies of the Nazis. And today what they're doing is erasing any vestige of the fact that they served side by side with the Nazis against the Red Army. So they're eliminating the memorials to the Red Army so that they can preserve their alliance to the Nazis. They parade wearing Nazi uniforms. This is sick. This is a sickness. This is a disease. And part of the disease is a desire to erase Russia as having any vestige, but it's not going to work because you can't erase a people. You can't erase a language. You can't erase the culture. You can't erase the history. History will always win out, and the history of Ukraine is part of an extension of the Russian nation, with the exception of Western Ukraine, which I, again, I got to be nice because I'm sure there's people there who aren't bad people. The beautiful area, I've taken a look at their, 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 their cities. I've taken a look at the, um, the architecture. Um, it's lovely, except it's populated by uh, hate-filled people, people who hate Russians, who hate everything about Russia and are seeking to erase that by, you know, through this process of you know, making everything Ukrainian. The Ukrainian language is an artificial construct. Understand that. Volodymyr Zelensky is a native Russian speaker. To show you how fake the Ukrainian language is, in order for him to speak to, he used to speak to the Ukrainian people in Russian. That's the language. But now he only speaks in Ukrainian, and it's ugly because he doesn't speak it very well. Uh, but he has to pretend now. When people are speaking in Russian, he has to take the simultaneous translation device and pretend that he, he only listens to Ukrainian. That's how sick this place has become. I, I remember John Mearsheim arguing that just pushing Russia toward China would not be in the, interest, in, in the interest of the United States. How, how did it work out for, for, for United States? It, it seems that the, the, the alliance between the China and Russia is growing bigger, and, and you know that China is sending delegation to to Ukraine to to offer the peace agreement. They are also trying to to negotiate more uh, more deals with with Ukraine. Maybe they want to to reconstruct Ukraine. They they want to help Ukraine. To, to to rebuild the country. How how do you see this this idea of John Mearsheimer that lead then then comes to the China trying to make a peace between Ukraine and 
Russia. How, how do you see this? Well, you know, first of all, let's just look at what Mr. Mearsheimer is saying here. He's implying that it's unnatural for Russia and China to have good relations. Because what does pushing Russia to China mean? America is pushing Russia to China as if Russia doesn't want to be a part of you know, with China. I don't know. Um, Brazil. You guys uh, border a lot of countries, right? You know, Colombia, Venezuela, Argentina. Pardon? Uruguay. Uruguay. And, and my point is this. Um, do you, does Brazil have to be pushed to have relations with Uruguay? Pushed? Or is it natural because you're neighbors? Do you, are, do you have to be pushed to have relations with Venezuela? Pushed to have relations with Colombia? Pushed to have relations with Argentina? Do you? No. They're your neighbors. It's natural. And so the arrogance of Mearsheimer's statement that the United States is pushing Russia towards China. Imagine you're the Chinese and you have, you've inherited, you know, the Chinese Communist Party has inherited this nation, um, you know, that quickly becomes more than a billion people. And um, and you want to develop, you want to, you, you know, because... You don't want people living in poverty. You want to develop people. You want to develop your economy to your full potential. And so you come up with these five-year plans that say every five years we're going to take 300 million people who are currently in poverty and we're going to bring them middle-class standards. And you execute three successive five-year plans doing this, which means 900 million people have been brought out of poverty into the middle class, and you're in the process of finalizing the final quadrant, another 300,000. So 1.2 billion people have been brought into the middle class. A, that's just gobsmacking amazing, if you think about it. Four times the population of the United States and China has brought them in the span of the last 30 years into the middle class, whereas America's middle class is eroding. Just, you know, more people are moving into poverty. Um, but now how does China do that? Now, does China want to go all the way across the Pacific to get energy from the United States and Canada and Mexico and all that? Or do they look to their neighbor to the north and say, we'd like that energy to come in this direction? Do they have to be pushed to do that or is that natural? And the answer is it's natural. It's natural. Now, there is some concern in Russia, uh, given the fact that China is so big, it has so many people, and that in the Far East, it's very thinly populated, that, you know, there's a lot of fear, and I think it's more racially driven than it is practically driven, that China will seek to move into this vacuum um, and all that stuff. I, I, I hear that all the time, but the, uh, there's a lot of racism involved in that. Uh, I, I don't think, I think it's a fear of uh, of, of, of you know, ethnic Russians fearing, you know, ethnic Chinese coming in. And, and, and I don't think there's that much truth to that. I think that Russia and China are nations that, especially China, you know, that endorses the Westphalian principles of non-intervention in, in foreign lands. You know, the Chinese are not hypocrites. So why would they insist that Taiwan is theirs? part of China, and they don't want foreign powers intervening. At the same time, they're going to move into 
Siberia and, and Kamchatka and, 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 and occupy the Far East. is isn't going to happen. Um, you know, these are constructs put up by people who, frankly speaking, don't know what they're talking about. Um, so the idea that we're going to push Russia to China is absurd. Russia always has had relations with China. Always. It always will. Now, the question is, are these relations going to be, um, are we going to make it so that the cooperation that naturally exists is defined by what? Both nations being part of a multipolar world uh, where everybody's treated as equal, where you can have free trade with the United States, free trade with Europe, um, and, and let this define the relationship. Because understand that China has certain economic potential. Russia has certain economic potential. But if that economic potential is given the ability to freely express itself around the world, it reduces the the, the, the gravitational pull uh, that would bring China and Russia together because there will be a dissipation of it. doesn't mean that you're going to separate Russia and China. It just means that the, the things that hold them together won't be as, as, as urgent and as uh, compressed because there will be a release. But I think what Mersheimer is suggesting is that when we seek to isolate Russia from China or isolate China from Russia, first of all, you can't isolate. They will be together. But when you impose policies that simultaneously attack China and Russia, what you do is by sanctioning them, all that release that was going out there is now contained. And yet they both have economic potential that needs to be fed. China is in the process of sustaining, you know, 1.2 billion strong middle class. Russia is rebuilding and building themselves up. So you have these two powers that are building, and this means they need resources, uh, and they need to have economies that China needs to be producing things that people are going to buy. Russia needs to be producing things that China is going to buy. And so we've brought them together. All those economic forces that were going out this way have now been contained, and now they're going across the border. This makes the relationship between China and Russia even stronger. The gravitational pull is bringing them closer together. And you know, that, that's economically, but now it's also geopolitically because, you know, when you're threatening Russia with, you know, conflict in Ukraine, you're threatening China with conflict in Taiwan. Uh, that means they, and it's the same people threatening. It's one thing if Russia's over here being friends with China, but over here you got, you know, Nation X threatening Russia, but Nation X not threatening China. So China's going to say, hey, I'm sorry about that thing you got going with Nation X, but not our problem, man. But we'll keep working with you economically, but not our problem. China's over here got Nation Y picking on Taiwan, and Russia's going to go, yeah, yeah, sorry about that Nation Y thing, but we're worried about Nation X over here. We're not. But what happens when it's Nation X doing both? And so China's saying, hey, Nation X is giving you a hard time in Ukraine, and they're sort of bothering us here in Taiwan as well. Why don't we work together against Nation X? And that's what's happening. So Mearsheimer, I think there's a there's a little bit of a of a prejudice that the, the the notion that Russia has to be pushed towards China is flawed. Russia and China have natural inclinations. You don't have to push them. But what you can do is intensify 
the gravitational pull by containing them simultaneously by powers that they now both identify as potential enemies. So now their collaboration even becomes more intense. And it's beyond economic. It becomes geopolitical. It becomes military in nature. And that's where we're at. And then, because Joe Biden is an idiot, we can throw in another nation to the mix, Iran. Um, if you remember 1997, Joe Biden mocking, you know, oh, they say if uh, we expand NATO, the Russia will be driven to China. Again, the ignorance. They're already, but they're going to be driven. You know, well, good luck in your senior year. I don't even know what that means, but that's what he said. And he said, while you're at it, why don't you try to become friends with the Iranians too? Ha, ha, ha. Look what happened. Russia, China, Iran, strategically together, all united against the same enemy. And um, the collective strength of those three powers brought together when you, when you realize that it's not just the three of them, but in the middle of it is the Eurasian mass, Central Asia, extending into so, uh, so, Southwest Asia and, 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 and Southern Asia, extending into Southeast Asia, that that's all now their, their orchard to start picking the fruit from. And so what we've done is we brought Iran, Russia, and China together, and they will now control this massive landmass which becomes a sort of a self-sustaining economic geopolitical engine that Europe and the United States can't stop. And it's going to start sucking the life out of the rest of the world because the United States and Europe, it's a double-edged sword containment. All right? I contain you when I think I'm strong. Aha, I've contained you. You can't get access to what I have. But then when you become super strong... And I become weaker, I need what you're accessing, but I can't get to you because I've contained It's a double-edged sword. And that's what's happening here. We built this wall of containment, economic sanctions-based containment. But now the wall isn't stopping everybody else from doing business. They're thriving. The wall is preventing us from participating in this activity. Double-edged sword. That's where we're going. We can say the after Ukrainian one of the, the biggest loser of this war is Europe. How do you see the people of Europe, these, these countries, when they're going to reach a boiling point and say no to what's going on in Ukraine? I don't know. I mean, you know, <laughs> there's two analogies that could be used here. Um, one is the, um, the frog analogy. I don't know how true it is, but everybody talks about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You take a frog and you throw him into a pot of boiling water and he's going to, bam, try and get out there as fast as he can. Throw the frog in there and you slowly turn up the temperature. He'll be swimming around until all of a sudden he's boiled because he doesn't realize that that's happening. Again, I've never tried it. I don't want to try yeah, it. Works. That's, that's, it works that's, this that's way. an analogy that's put out there. Um, but the, um, the other one is, um, uh, oh, sheep. Yeah. Um, the other one is just baby lambs. They're there and a dog comes out and, and herds them in and they go, oh, okay, the dog's our friend. And they have a shepherd up there saying, bring them this way, boys. And they're sitting there going, oh, look, the friendly shepherd is taking us over the field and the dog's keeping us together and we're all happy. And they go straight to the slaughter and they're all killed. That's Europe, one of the two. Because what's missing here is the notion of a sovereign person standing up saying that ain't going to happen guys 
I ain't going to jump in the boiling water. I'm not going to let you boil me, and I'm damn sure not following you to the slaughterhouse. I'm a sovereign person, part of a sovereign nation. We're going to make our own decisions, stick it in your ear, and get out of here. Where's European sovereignty? I mean, take a look at one of the most influential people in Europe today, Ursula van der Leyen. Who elected her? No one. And yet she's the president of the European Commission. Unelected official. Europe has become this European Union, this European Commission, is this nebulous thing of bureaucrats who talk about something that doesn't exist. What is the European vision? I know what an Italian vision is. I can go to Rome and I can see the Italian vision. I know what the German vision is. I can go to Germany and see what Germany is. I know what the French vision is. What is a European vision? It's fake. It doesn't exist. There's never been a European vision. Europe is a continent composed of sovereign states each one of which has their own historical roots, their own culture, their own system, their own values. I'm not saying they should be at war with one another. Absolutely not. But what they've done out of the fear of European conflict is to create something that doesn't exist, a European vision, a united Europe. United in what, though? What should unite you is the uniqueness of each one of your component parts so that when a Frenchman sits down across from a German, they can sit there and laugh at each other about, you know, you're a wine drinking guy or you're a German, you're a beer drinking guy. You know, oh, we, I mean, whatever. I'm being super racist right now and I apologize. I'm trying to have humor here. But, uh, my point is they're different. A German is different from a Frenchman. A Frenchman is different from an Italian. A Spaniard is different from everybody. And yet you're trying to pretend that they're not different. So they've erased all these things, and they've created something that doesn't exist. And as a result, you have generations of people growing up in Europe that forgot what it meant to be German, who forgot what it meant to be Italian, who forgot what it meant to be Frenchman. And so now they're being led, basically what they become is sheep, stupid sheep. They're being led by the Americans towards the slaughterhouse with unelected Ursula von der Leyen is the dog holding them together. Stay in there, lead up. You're all going to die. They're all sheep. Or they're a bunch of frogs that have just been dumped in the water and America's just sitting there turning up the heat and they're all going to boil. But there's no, they've lost what it meant to be a German. So therefore, when the United States attacks German infrastructure, normally you'd expect the German people to say, what the hell have you done? But there's no more German people. They're European sheep. They go, meh, meh. That's it. All they do is bleat, being led to the slaughter. Europe disgusts me right now. I lived in Europe when it was Europe. I knew what it meant to go from Germany to France. Yeah, it was a pain in the neck to go to the bank and say I got my German marks and I need French francs. But they did it. I paid a commission. It wasn't economic. But now I knew I was in France. Why? Because I'm owning French francs. And then when I go across the border to, to Italy, it's a pain. I got to go stand in line again, turn in my French French and get my Italian lira. But now I know I'm in Italy. Why? I'm holding Italian lira. I knew the difference between Germany, between France, between Italy. I knew the peso of Spain because they were distinct nations, distinct people. And it was beautiful. It was wonderful. And the other beautiful thing about it is even then, if I went to France, a lot of the French people spoke Spanish and German 
and Italian. Why? Because they lived in that neighborhood. You needed to speak those languages, but you didn't need to become this fake thing called European. There's no such thing as a European citizen. There is no such thing as a European citizen. It doesn't, it can't exist. And yet they've tried to create that. And that's the problem. You say, when are they going to wake up? How can you awake something that doesn't exist? Awaken what? European national identity? There is no European nation. How do you awaken German national identity when you've erased it? I mean, Germany is a fundamentally broken continent. And that's where we're at today. And that's something the United States always wanted. We always wanted that. A weak Europe doing our bidding. We love it when we're the shepherd and we can lead Europe around. We love it that way. That's why the sabotage of North Sea Pipeline happened. Yeah, and nobody's talking about it. Why? Because sheep can't talk. All they can do is bleat as you lead them to the slaughter. How do you see the last question here? How do you see what would be the solution to this war in Ukraine? Do you see uh, peace talks or uh, the complete defeat of Ukraine? Complete defeat of Ukraine. First of all, again, <laughs> my, my whole thing is being honest, so I'm going to be honest. Ukraine doesn't have a right to exist anymore as a nation state. It's lost that right. It forfeited it. I'm sorry. It was always a fake state. I'm very sympathetic to the arguments made by the Russians that lead up to the special military operation that talked about Ukraine being an artificial construct. I'm sympathetic to you know, the role played by Lenin in artificially promoting the concept of nations where no nations existed. That was part of a, the, the communist uh, policy of nation building to create the Soviet Union. I'm sympathetic to the argument uh, made about, you know, Khrushchev attaching, um, you know, Crimea in an artificial, you know, artificial manner. Um, the, the post-war, you know, decisions made by Stalin to attach this, to attach that. It's a Frankenstein nation, a Frankenstein nation. And like the monster Frankenstein, it may look like a human, but it ain't human. And at the end of the day, it's got to be destroyed. Ukraine is a fundamentally poisoned country. What makes it more poison than anything else is Western Ukraine. These people are incompatible with the Russian nation. They don't belong as part of the Russian nation. But here's the problem. They're poisoned. Literally, these are people who have been poisoned for decades by the ideology of Stepan Bandera. You know, they could have been saved had there been complete denazification in the post-war environment. But Khrushchev, Khrushchev brought an end to that. Again, the West doesn't understand what happened between 1945 and 1954 when the CIA continued to fund money using German Galen organization, which had close links to these Banderas because of their complicity with the Germans during the slaughter of Jews, the slaughter of Poles, the slaughter of Russians. And they continued to receive money and training from the CIA, from the British, uh, from the Germans to continue a struggle, a struggle that from 1944 to 1945 lost hundreds of thousands of lives, hundreds of thousands of people were killed in a war that never ended until 1954 when the survivors either fled or taken prisoner and sent to the Gulag. In the Gulag, they should have been denazified or died. I'm sorry. If you're a Nazi, there ain't no sympathy here. The best thing to happen for a Nazi is for you to decide to put a bullet in your head and end your life. If you don't want to, I'll be glad to put a bullet in your head. But if we decide that you want to live, then you're going to rot in a prison until we can re-educate you, and I don't know if that's possible with true believers. But they sent these people off. Two things. 
one, the people that fled were given safe haven, safe haven in Canada, the United States, in Great Britain, in Australia, safe haven where they built camps and they started to poison the minds of the next generation of Western Ukrainians, the Banderists. They exist here. And here, right here in New York, they call themselves Banderists. They're proud of it. They parade with this damn photograph. They light torches. They wear the Nazi uniform. And we say it's wonderful because we call them Ukrainian. They're not Ukrainians. They're Nazis. End of story. Done. But they live now. They thrive. And they send all this money back. And they create this ideological base. You see, Western Ukrainian national identity doesn't exist on the Russian national thing. It's a, it exists in diaspora. Diaspora and the diaspora feeds this poison. But again, they were stripped. They either fled, they went to prison. What's left? A vacuum. But then Khrushchev in 1956, only three years after these bastards were sent to prison for 25 years, they should have rotted and died in the gulag. But no, Khrushchev opens the doors, calls them political prisoners, frees them, and they come back and they insinuate themselves over the course of the next de- decades into Ukrainian society, Ukrainian government. With the backing of the CIA, the CIA funded the Banderists operating in Ukraine from 1954 when they stopped the military operations up until 1990. Up until now, and even after that, the CIA maintained their links so that in 2014, this was a CIA orchestrated controlled uh, coup. Done. These people exist. They can't exist. I'm sorry. Um, so Russia needs to win this war. Look, when you have a disease... And Western Ukraine is a disease. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a diseased part of Europe, an absolute diseased part of Europe. What do you do about it? Pretend it doesn't exist? No, it exists. It has to be excised. You have to cure the disease. How do we do that? The first thing is get rid of the host. Ukraine can't exist when this is done. I'm on I'm, I'm, I'm on Team Medvedev right now. That's a saying, the old... Uh, movie uh, about vampires here in the United States. You're either team vampire, you're team uh, werewolf. Um, so I'm, I'm team werewolf here, Medvedev. Um, and he just, he straight up said, can't exist anymore. I didn't like that. I didn't used to believe in that. I didn't want to believe in that. It sort of went against my grain. But when I take a look at what, how far down the path NATO has taken Ukraine, because this is the fault of NATO. NATO made this decision. The United States made this decision, but we've taken it so far. How do you come back? How do you come back? If somebody could show me a path back to get to where I could say that the concept of a independent, sovereign, viable Ukraine is a reality without guaranteeing that this war is going to be fought again. Because that's the key aspect of it. this war from the Russian perspective can never be fought again. But if you allow this rotten body called Ukraine to exist without curing the disease, then the war will happen again. It will never end, just like it never ended when the CIA breathe life into the Banderas in the post-World War II environment and kept them alive in diaspora, funding them, insinuating them in the government, controlling them. So it has to end. It has to end. And it, it, it ends by the death of Ukraine. And Zelensky knows this. That's why he refuses to negotiate a surrender. Uh, Zelensky's bought into Team America. And uh, he's, he's going to receive this aid up until the very end. And then he's going to flee. That's what he thinks is going to happen. He's the most corrupt man and one of the most corrupt men in the world. In addition to the 300 plus million that he stole from Ukraine prior to the war, according to Steve Hirsch, he's come up with a scheme to take another 400 million. 
That's just Zelensky alone by himself. So I'm sure he has properties. People talk about properties in Panama, I mean in Miami and elsewhere, that he'll flee to if he's given the chance. Um, and that's okay. He can go rot in exile. But the future of Ukraine will not be Volodymyr Zelensky. His government will be erased, annihilated. The people who support it will have to be re-educated or killed or sent into diaspora. Uh, but whatever comes out of this war, this is just a harsh, realistic appraisal. Whatever happens at the end of this war, the poison that is modern Ukraine cannot be allowed to exist or else this war will just continue. And I think, again, unfortunately, because, and I say unfortunately because I, I'm somebody who is prone to extreme um, conclusions. They're, they're rational, but they're extreme. I, I'm not a middle ground kind of person, but I like middle ground people. I really do because it's sort of the middle ground is how you get out of conflict. My approach a lot of conflict. So I like the middle ground. I want the middle ground. You know who could provide the middle ground? Europeans could, but not Europe. Forget Europe. Europeans, French, Germans, Italians, they could provide the middle ground by articulating common sense approaches towards dealing with Ukraine, dealing with Russia, etc. Um, but they don't exist. They have forfeited the policy formulation to the United States. And the United States is all about the destruction of Russia. And the United States has never been about the preservation of a truly sovereign Ukraine. Ukraine was always a tool, never a nation. Ukraine was always a a a a, a weapon, never a people. And so we've allowed, in order to weaponize this tool, the United States has allowed the people in the nation of Ukraine to be destroyed. And they are fundamentally destroyed today. We've created a, we've taken a Frankenstein that could have been turned into a human, maybe, and we've just turned it into a monster. And that monster must die. And I think the Russians are getting there. I mean, look, the Russian people, they didn't want this war. I think, I think everybody should understand, even when Putin started the special military operation, uh, it wasn't fully understood. A lot of Russians listened to his speech, which, in which he explained it. Um, and went, ah, I don't want this, boss. We don't want this. I think you could have easily have said that 60, 70 percent of the Russians were not on board with a special military operation when it first happened. Um, that doesn't mean they were anti-Putin, but it means they were uncomfortable about this war. It just wasn't their thrill factor. They didn't want to do this. Uh, it, it just wasn't there. But if you've taken a look what's happened in Russia... They have gradually come to a realization that, A, uh, Ukraine is just a, a, a poison state. It is a poison state. Uh, they can't be part of the Russian nation as it's currently configured. And yet it is part of the Russian nation. Therefore, you must cleanse the poison, free the disease. Um, they've also come to recognize, as Vladimir Putin did early on, um, that this isn't about Russia versus Ukraine. This is about Russia versus the West versus NATO, versus the United States. This is an existential struggle for Russian national survival. Um, and so when you have that realization, when, it, when you're suddenly confronted with the fact that this war was designed to kill you, that's a harsh reality. It, started, it went from being, man, why are we doing this? Why are we doing, doing this to, holy cow, these guys are trying to kill us. 
Therefore, we have to destroy them. We have to defeat them. So there's a growing recognition in Russia that Ukraine can no longer exist. Europe is going to reach that conclusion. Because I think Europe is recognizing that the United States has created poison. And for Europe to allow this poison to leak into every aspect of it, to poison their politics, their economy, everything, create the potential perpetual conflict, which is all Ukraine is. Think about it. If you want to have a Ukraine continued in the vision of Volodymyr Zelensky, you're talking about perpetual war, a never-ending war. There will never be peace, ever, ever be peace. Perpetual conflict. Does Europe want perpetual war? The answer is no. And so eventually Europe is going to say goodbye, Ukraine. It's nice knowing you, but we're not going to we're not going to sit back and save you. There's nothing to save here. Your your poison, your cancer, you must be excised, etc. Which leaves the United States, <clears throat> and the United States has shown throughout history, again, when we say we support somebody, we don't. Just a statement of fact. We're not your friends. We don't like you. We don't want to like you. We only want to use you. We want to use you to promote what's good for America. You are a tool that we choose to weaponize. But what happens when you lose a battle? You drop the tool and you leave. And that's what we did in South Vietnam. That's what we did in Afghanistan. That's what we're doing in the Middle East. And that's what we're going to do in Ukraine. We don't care about the Ukrainian people. That's the greatest tragedy here because the Ukrainian people actually think America's there to help them. But there's going to be the realization, the same ugly realization that's met by everybody we abandoned in history, that we are not there for you. We don't care about you. Yes, we'll have some token money put aside so we can bring in some refugees. We did that with the South Vietnamese. We did that with the Afghans. We'll do it with the Ukrainians. We'll bring some Ukrainians in. It'll be easier to absorb them because they're white. We like white people here in America. Um, you know, those, those, those South Vietnamese, that was tough, but we had a relation. We did it. You know, there's a lot of Japanese in the East Coast, so it gets absorbing because one Asian looks like another. The Afghans are a little brown, but uh, yeah, we'll do Okay, we'll take some of them, but not too many. Not too many because they're Muslim. We don't want too many Muslims. But Ukrainians, they're white, they're Christian. Yeah, we'll take we'll take some Ukrainians. That's it. And I'm being sort of farcical here, but it's the truth. America is a deeply racist nation, a deeply racist nation. If you don't believe that our foreign policy is driven by racism, you know nothing about our foreign policy. But um, we don't care about Ukraine. We don't even know. <laughs> All the Ukrainians are running around with their, you know, we're Ukrainian, they're this, we're that. You know? Americans don't care. We put the flag out there, that's it. Uh, beyond the flag, we don't know anything about you, and we don't want to know anything about you. All we want you to do is die in our cause. <laughs> That's it. And how could it be anything else? Understand that the American people continue to support a conflict that's taken hundreds of thousands of Ukrainian lives. And we're not crying. We're not weeping. We're not sickened. You know who is sickened by this? The Russian people. They care more about the Ukrainians than we do. This is destroying them. This hurts them. This is painful. There's no joy in Russia for winning this war. There's nausea. There's a sickness. There's regret. 
but there's no joy. Again, here in America, we have Congress passing a resolution, you know, a victory in Ukraine resolution. It's a suicide pact. It says that we must pass a law that says it's a policy in the United States for Ukraine to take back Crimea and the Donbass and Zaporizhia and, and, and Zaporizhia without understanding, as Dmitry Medvedev just reminded everybody. I hope everybody watched that speech that he gave the other day. where he said, you know, all you guys out there that think that Russia's bluffing. Oh, Russia's threatening nuclear weapons. Russia's this, Russia. He said, we don't bother. He said, I'm a former president of, Ukraine, of, of Russia. I know what these weapons are. When the time comes, you must have a steady hand over these weapons, ready to use them. And he said, if you don't think we're going to use them, you don't know us. And if you threaten the survival of Russia, we will destroy you. 100% guarantee. And one of the definitions of threatening the survival of Russia is to strip away Russian territory from Mother Russia. Crimea is Russia. Zaporizhia is Russia. Kherson is Russia. Donetsk is Russia. Lugansk is Russia. And any American policy says that they're going to return to Ukraine. It says that we want to commit suicide. And that's what Ukraine has become. A suicide pill. It is a giant suicide pill. And America say it telling people, swallow it. And Russia saying, if you do, you all die. That's why Ukraine has to be gone, disappeared, not exist. You can call it a republic of, of Russia, but sovereign Ukraine, especially a sovereign Ukraine attached to the poison of Bandera, can't be allowed to exist because it's only a suicide bill. Thank you so much, Scott, for being with us today. When are you going to travel to Russia? Hopefully I'll leave Saturday. Ah. You can stay there for one one month. I have, um, first of all, I'm going there because my book was published in Russia, which is a great honor. I mean, yeah. um, I I can't express the, how happy this makes me feel to, to because it was a book about Russia. It was about the Soviet Union. It was about Russia. Um, it's a book that I, I wrote uh, so that the American people could um you know, be exposed to the history of the INF Treaty, the importance of disarmament, and uh, perhaps as importantly, the, the concept of Russians and Americans working together in cooperative fashion to achieve mutually, uh, you know, a verifiable peace. Wow, what a concept. So it's like a template of hope. But, you know, any message has to, you know, message is part of communication. And com to communicate, you can't just be speaking to the wind. You have to have somebody on the receiving end. And in this case, the person on the receiving end must be the Russians. So for the Russians to say, we want to publish your book in Russia so that the Russian people could be exposed to the same message that I'm trying to get to the United States. Wow, we've just created this potential for communication. We've created something where people can begin to talk. So I'm thrilled to death to be able to go over there. I'm going to 11 different locations. Um Throughout the whole expanse of Russia, I'm going to have the opportunity to meet with Russian people, see Russian people, see Russia, communicate to them about this. And and I'd like to believe that, um, I mean, look, I I, uh, I don't want to elevate myself, but, you know, I, I, I refer to the experience of uh, Van Cliburn, the um, Texas uh, musician, the piano player, who in 1958 went to Moscow to participate in the Tchaikovsky Music Festival, and he won it. Won it. And in doing so, he won the hearts of the Russian people, the Soviet people. They fell in love with this guy, an American, a young man. He was 25 at that time from Texas who had 
appreciated their culture, could play their music, play their music perfectly, with a little bit of a Texas flair to it, but still perfectly. And it wasn't just the Russians that appreciated it. You know, he came back and they gave him a ticker tape parade down New York City. In the history of the Avenue of Heroes, we put generals, presidents, politicians, astronauts, firefighters, policemen, they've all gone down there. Only one musician has been given that honor. And so, you know, I don't want to put myself up at the level of Van Cliburn, but what I've, what I've always said to people is, you know, you have to discover your inner Van Cliburn. Each one of us has a little piece of Van Cliburn in us, which means we have to go on that journey. We have to go out to meet, learn, educate, come back, and do the same thing. Exactly. And so that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to discover my inner Van Cliburn, and I'm going to go over there and try and repl- replicate at least somewhat what he uh, was able to accomplish. And, um, and we'll see. I, I just have a, I just feel really good about this trip. It's a tough trip. And we're going there. Russia's at war right now. It's tough. Yeah. Um, and politically, it's going to be tough to get that message across. But if you don't do it, then what? Do we wait for Medvedev's hand to push that button? Do we wait for the world to end? You got to do it now. You know, the the toughest part of every journey is that first step. But I'm going to make that first step, and then I think the journey will uh, will define itself. Good. Thank you so much, Scott, for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah.